Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as one of the elders here with the church, and it is a delight to get to worship God together with you today. Just a few reminders before we look at the text, because there are so many important things happening in the life of our church this upcoming month. Let me just remind you that as always, there'll be fellowship at Food Central and Deer City Center following the service. Maybe I, this is one that I, I really would like to emphasize is tomorrow, 5 p.m. in Rasselheimer, we will have our special baptism celebration. I know many of us are used to the rack road trip now after those five months up there, but I want to encourage you to come one more time as we have a dozen men and women who will be baptized tomorrow. And these testimonies, these stories are just incredible, many of which were saved in our church. And so just encourage you to register and to come 5 p.m. tomorrow. Also a note to our members, our next members meeting is this upcoming Tuesday at 7 p.m. at the Pullman Hotel at a city center, Dera. If you're able to come in person, register and just join us so we can have fellowship together. Otherwise, you can join on Zoom. And we'll celebrate the birth of Christ on Christmas Eve, Friday, December 24th. But just a reminder, we will not meet in this room and we will not meet in this room in the morning. So there'll be no Friday morning services. We'll be meeting instead Friday evening, 5 p.m. and 7.30 p.m., and not here, but at the Crown Plaza on Sheikh Zayed Road. We're so thankful uh, to the staff and to the team there at the Crown Plaza who are welcoming us for Christmas celebrations. And so you'll see invite cards there on your seats. That'll remind you, but also feel free to pass that out to others and, uh, and bring them with us to celebrate the birth of Christ. We'll have kids and adults. We'll have us all together. We have a kids' choir as well. And so be sure to register all of your family uh, when you do so. And finally, we encourage you to worship through giving. We don't currently have a time where we pass around a bag during the service, but we encourage you to continue to give what God has given to you. Well, now as we approach God's word, let's go to him in prayer. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. We praise you for the Crown Plaza Hotel here in Dira. We praise you for the Crown Plaza Hotel on Sheikh Zayed Road. Oh, would you bless them? Would you bless their business? Would you bless their management and leaders? We're so thankful to them. Father, we thank you for our kind rulers who give us permissions to meet here. Bless their hospitality towards us. We pray, Father, that you provide all the giving and everything we need for life and ministry in this place. And would we be in awe of our Savior this morning as we look at your word, as we open Isaiah, Father, would we see a beautiful glimpse of the Savior of the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, do you like to wait? How are you with waiting? Now, I won't ask you to raise your hands this morning. That might be too embarrassing. But I wonder how many of you struggle with waiting. And I ask that because I can't ever remember anyone saying to me, Pastor, I love waiting. In my 13 years in the UAE, no one has ever come up to me with the pastoral problem of being too patient. 
One band sang it well long ago. The waiting is the hardest part. None of us like waiting. We don't like waiting in traffic. I went to Sharjah the last couple Mondays, and I know it's a miracle that I'm here today to be with you. <laughs> Friends, doesn't it seem like traffic is getting worse? I know many of you travel in and out of Sharjah and Ajman and do that on a regular basis. I know it must be so difficult. I just got a little taste of it once again the last two Mondays. And on my, my first trip, I've come to sympathize with you even more about this great oddity because Alan Mandap, who led our service, he drove me and he put the GPS on his phone and it said that we would arrive at our destination in 54 minutes. And I thought, okay, great. We'll be there 10 minutes early. Well, let's just say I was wrong. Because Sharjah traffic doesn't play by the rules. As I looked at that GPS time and time again, the minutes on the clock, they're changed, but the minutes on the GPS didn't. So 35 minutes. And then I looked again, 35 minutes. And again, 35 minutes. I just gave up checking it. Sharjah traffic doesn't play by the rules. And it reminded me that I don't like waiting. But life is full of waiting, isn't it? Waiting for our medical results. Waiting for our job interview. Married friends, what was your engagement like? At some point you started to count down the days and you knew just how far off your wedding day was. We don't like waiting for the next season of our favorite TV series to be released. We don't like waiting to figure out when we'll meet together as a church with this new weekend announcement. But by the way, let me just give you, this is just a secret. Can, can you keep it just between us? Okay, here's, 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 here's when we're going to meet as a church starting in January. I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea at all. But we know that God knows. And we know that God will provide for us. We don't like waiting. We don't like waiting for the WhatsApp messages to be returned. We see those two blue checks and we just, just are wondering, why aren't they writing us back? You know they've read it, but nothing, nothing at all. We don't like waiting at the airport, do we? Now, there are some crazy people at the airport. Have you noticed this? It's actually all of us. Somehow you take normal humans like you and me and you put all of us into an airport and we start acting kind of crazy. I remember back in the, the old days when I arrived here, there were no electronic queues, there was no fast track there through immigration. We all came into this room and there were all these long lines that you had to get in there at Terminal 1. And just remember as we arrived closer and closer there to the terminal, um, after hours and hours on a flight, you would think that all of those passengers were Usain Bolt just rushing to the front of these lines. Now, my tactic was a little bit different. I stepped back briefly to survey the scene, try to count people and try to find the shortest line. But of course, always, inevitably, the line that I chose, it worked great for a little bit until a family of 18 people at the front somehow happened to lose their passports that day at the airport. So then I moved to a new line, and of course, you know, what would happen then? My old line starts going in super speed, and my new line stalls. We don't like waiting. Now sure, we might procrastinate from doing our homework and studies. Youth, is this you? 
You know who you are. More importantly, God knows who you are. I'm not talking about that. Others might procrastinate from a root canal, but that's not what I'm talking about today. This isn't about waiting at the airport or waiting in traffic or waiting for the sermon to end. Don't worry, it will at some point before 2 p.m. <laughs> what are you really waiting for? What are you waiting for? What's the first thing that comes to your mind today? Is it to be with family you're separated from? To be reconciled to a friend? Are you waiting for physical healing? Those migraines to disappear, the dark clouds of depression to pass you by, a chronic illness to cease. You're waiting for that new job to come through, a new schedule, a new boss, a visa issued, loan payments finished, graduation from school. Maybe you're waiting on marriage, or motherhood, or fatherhood. You're waiting for those sinful temptations to stop, for the day when you'll find more victory over greed, or lust, or pride. Friend, if you're waiting on God today, there's hope. There's hope. The waiting is the hardest part. We see that in the Bible, the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament was a period or a time of waiting. Christmas was coming. Christ was coming. The Savior was coming, but He wasn't here yet. There were promises made by God, but there was a waiting for the promise to come to God's people. And it started with Adam and Eve's sin. They were given a garden. They were given perfect fellowship with God. They were given everything that they needed, but it wasn't enough. And we see that Adam and Eve, the first two humans, turned away from God, and they looked to the world, to the flesh, and to the devil to find their security and significance. And all of us, as humanity, have followed suit. Sin, pain, and death have arrived, and the wait for God to intervene began. But God was always gracious. It's amazing when you read the beginning of Genesis, because as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, what do we see? Well, we see lavish mercy and lavish grace. And we see Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We see something that's often called the proto-evangelion. That's a big word. Proto means first. Evangelion means gospel or the good news. And so we see the first gospel or, or at least a first glimpse of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is amazing because Adam and Eve had just turned from God. And God promises that a deliverer would come who would crush Satan. The waiting began. Later in Genesis, God promises a descendant of Abraham would save his people from their sins. And that promise would pass to his son Isaac and to his son Jacob and to his son Judah and on and on. Along the way, Exodus and Leviticus, we see that the laws and the sacrifices were given. So the laws, one point of the law, one reason for the law was to show us that we can't keep the law. That God is holy and God is perfect, but we are not. And we could never save ourselves. And the sacrifices, one of the, point of the, one of the points of the sacrifices was that they never ultimately atoned for sin. You had to do them year in and year out. 
The waiting continued. Then a series of judges would rise up and would rule, but they failed to save and only pointed to a greater judge. More waiting. Then kings showed up. Israel wanted a king, just like all the other nations. Oh God, give us a king. And so they had kings. But all of those kings failed. Even the greatest king, King David, failed and only pointed to a greater king who would one day come. A series of prophets came next, but they couldn't save. Their main purpose was pointing to the one who did. The prophet Micah said that a rescuer would come and be born in a town called Bethlehem. Zechariah foretold that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. <laughs> Isaiah, whom we come to today, said that the Savior would not come in power, would not come as a superhero or a military victor, but this Savior, this one would come as a servant who would be oppressed and rejected and despised and disfigured. The whole Old Testament is about waiting. And when Malachi, the final book, the final prophecy in the Old Testament finished, the Old Testament ends, there was complete and utter silence. No more prophetic words for 400 years. And all of this is this waiting that we reflect on during the season of Advent. Many of you have already begun reading our wonderful Advent materials and using the crafts. Advent, what it means is it signals the arrival, the waiting for the arrival of a noteworthy person or event. And for us, that's the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So today we'll be starting a three-week Advent series that I'll be preaching. Next week we'll look at the genealogy in Matthew 1, the, the family tree of Jesus from verses 1 through 17. On Christmas Eve evening, we'll look at the birth of Jesus from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. But today we're going we're to step back. We're going to look at that Old Testament. We're going to look at that period of waiting. And we're going to see a beautiful text. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 42. If you haven't already, it's a more than halfway, maybe two-thirds of the way through the Old Testament. And it's a part of a group of books called the Major Prophets. You might know the last 12 books of the Old Testament, books like Jonah and Haggai and Malachi. Those 12 are called the Minor Prophets. Now, they're not called minor because they're any less important, but they're just shorter. And Isaiah is a major prophet because it's a longer book. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. You'll also find today's text in your bulletins if you picked up one of those. The prophetic books record prophets. You can even call them preachers, those who preach the truth. They were called to speak for God and to deliver God's messages to, to, to the people. They were, in a sense, God's mouthpiece. They had no authority on their own, but they came and they preached and they taught under God's authority. At times, they foretold what would happen in the future. And Isaiah did just that. There was a servant coming. Isaiah provides us with four of these wonderful passages. You may know the one from Isaiah 52, verse 13 through Isaiah 53. There are four of these servant passages or servant songs. Today, we're going to look at the first one in chapter 42 that foretells 
what would happen in the future, that a servant was coming. We're going to look at verses 1 through 4, but we read all the way through 9 because verses 5 through 9, they form a bit of a conclusion or a confirmation of the first four verses. So here's the outline if you're taking notes today. Two points in these four verses. Number one, we'll see that the servant will testify God's word. The servant's going to testify of the truth. And then number two, the servant will be tender toward his people. We'll see a manner in how he comes and a manner of how he testifies the word and he will be tender toward his people. So those are our two points. That's where we're headed this morning. So number one, the servant will testify God's word. But before we look at verse one, Let's understand a bit more about the book of Isaiah. So we have the full context in our minds. We've done an overview of the Old Testament waiting, but let's, let's look a bit at Isaiah itself. One scholar, Alec Matir, uh, maps out Isaiah like this. He says the first five chapters are a, a bit of a preface. And I think you'll see that if you read Isaiah on your own, which I would encourage. Those first five chapters give us some background to Isaiah becoming a prophet and includes some mix, some selection of Isaiah's sermons. And then you see chapters 6 through 37. These chapters are written against the background of a failed kingship. And it shares a vision of a greater king, a greater David, who is to come. You could call that section the book of the king. In chapters 38 through 55, we have the book of the servant. And this is where we find ourselves today. So let me just go a little bit deeper into the background of these, these 18 chapters. In chapter 38, King Hezekiah of Judah is gravely ill. And... As he's ill, he does the right thing. He, he cries out to God. He, he weeps. He turns to the wall. Tears are shed. And he asks God to heal him. And Isaiah gets word from God that God is going to heal King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah is on his deathbed. And God is going to add 15 years to his life. But not just that. King Hezekiah gets a double blessing. He will be healed and he'll be spared from his enemy Assyria. So it's a bit of a double blessing. But how does King Hezekiah respond? I mean, does he marvel at God's mercy? Does he worship God? Well, no. Instead, he turns from faith and he takes matters into his own hands. It wasn't like God had just healed him from a little flu. He was on his deathbed. In fact, the text says he was sick to death. And Isaiah told him, you are about to die. You will not live. And so God literally heals the king from his deathbed. But immediately, in the verses of the chapters following, King Hezekiah makes an alliance with another enemy, Babylon. Now, this is terrible. We don't know what's going through King Hezekiah's mind. Maybe he was thinking, I'm just a small king of a small kingdom, and here is mighty Babylon, and they want to partner with me and make a treaty and make an alliance with me. And so he joins them. Well, what's God's response? Well, God's response is, Hezekiah, if you want to join Babylon, okay, you can go ahead and have it. Now, friends, Beware of what you want. Beware of what you seek. 
is you might get it. God may let you have it. Hezekiah is healed. He turns away from God, and God just lets him have what he wants. Now, can this happen to us today? Well, of course it can. We finally get what we want, and what do we do? Well, we rush back to the world. It's when it's war time, when times are tough, when we're sick, when we're struggling, we cry out to God to heal us. But what about when times are good? What about when we have good health? What about when we have a good job? What about when things are going well? Where do we go then? Are we tempted at all to turn back to the world for our security and our significance? Where do we turn in those days? Now, church, sometimes God lets us get what we want as a means of judgment. That's what Alan read for us in Romans chapter 1 earlier. Tells us that one of the worst kinds of judgments is when God just leaves us in our sin. When he just lets us go. When he just lets us continue. This is one of the worst kinds of judgment. God says, you want to sin? You want to betray me? Fine, go for it. You can have it. But friends, this never turns out well, does it? Hezekiah will face the consequences of this allegiance. But every failure of Israel and its leaders, we're faced with an important question. Does that mean that God's promises will be nullified? Well, Isaiah now has some explaining to do. Either he has to reject what he predicted earlier, or he has to show us how the promise will be fulfilled in spite of Israel's actions. And that's just what he does, just what Isaiah does in this section, chapters 38 through 55. I encourage you even later on today just to read on through these 18 chapters. Despite Israel's sin, God will keep his promises. And you'll use a servant, but not just any servant, nothing less than the second person of the triune God. God, the Son, will do the great sin-bearing work that we could not do on our own. Then the last chapters of the book, we see chapters 56 to 66. You could call this the book of the conqueror. The servant's work will include him conquering all enemies, a fitting end to the book. It's good to have this map of Isaiah on our minds when we study. We're in that second section, uh, second full section, the book of the servant. In many places in the section of Isaiah, we see that Israel itself is called the servant of the Lord. We see that in chapters 41, 42, 43, 44, 45, and 48. And at the same time in this section, you see that Jesus... The servant to come is called a servant. So you have both of these. And when you see the servant Israel, you see that Israel fails at every step. And so we need a greater servant. We need one who will come to make things right. And that servant we'll see is Jesus. The Lord's servant will fulfill God's will perfectly. So that's what we're going to see in our passage. So look down with me at verse 1. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Let me stop there. There's a connection here with the previous chapter where Isaiah exposes dead idols. Each passage ends with a dramatic summons. Look! Behold, look at you, look at this, you pathetic idolaters. 
Now, here's a third time the word is used. Look at this. Look at this instead. Look at all this instead of those dead and worthless idols. Look, behold, my servant. Well, this is a great reversal. Those idols can't do anything. But the servant, oh, the servant. Now, he's different. Oh, turn your gaze away from these idols, which are powerless, which are useless. Take your eyes off these idols and put your eyes on him. This is the only hope of defeating our idols and love for the world. Idolatry, what idolatry is, it's the putting of anything above God in our hearts. It's the treasuring of anything more than God. Here's the trouble, though. It's when our hearts get so wrapped in our relationships and, and status and money and comfort and control that we can't get out of these traps on our own. We can't just try harder. We can't just do more things. Another accountability group, another ministry, another internet filter. As the late great Scottish pastor Thomas Chalmers used to always say, we have to replace one affection with another affection. We have to replace one lesser affection with a greater affection. We have to stop gazing at the world and we have to start beholding our God. We need the power of a new and greater affection. We can't fight our idolatry and the lie of Dubai simply by, by making a budget. We can't fight our idolatry protecting our honor simply by hiding from fellowship, simply by, by not telling people what's really on our hearts. We can't fight our love for money simply by trying really hard not to think about money. We can't fight lust only by putting protective measures on our computers. Now, some of these things are helpful and maybe even necessary, but the only way to truly fight our idolatry is to do what Chalmers says and to find something better, to find a greater affection, to take your eyes off one paltry savior and to put your eyes and gaze and behold on this glorious servant. It's countercultural. It's not a military champion. It's not a military victor. It's not some superhero, but it's one who's going to come lowly. It's one who's going to come as a servant. It's one who's going to come from heaven to us. Look at that first line again. Behold, look, look at my servant whom I uphold. This is God the Father speaking here. Whom I uphold. To uphold means to grip fast. God the Father has him. He won't let him go. The one who will save us and change us is in the grip of the heavenly Father. It's not just anyone who's set for the task. You see that? It's one who's whose soul delights in. His soul delights in. This is marvelous. This should make our heads explode. This is the perfect love between God the Father and God the Son. This is not some employer picking a random employee for a task. This is God the Father sending God the Son, and he even puts his spirit upon the servant. Oh, this is mind-blowing. And what is he going to do at well, the end of verse 1? He's going to bring justice to the nations. We see the same truth down in verse 4. Look down there. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I mentioned biblical scholar Alec Matier. He's probably the, the greatest Isaiah scholar, passed away just a few years ago. But he says here as we look at verse 
for that the idea of justice is not simply implying a fair and pure society. Now that is a meaning of the word, but here Isaiah is using justice and law in parallel in those back-to-back phrases. The law means the teaching. It's seen 31 times in Psalm 119, I think almost 20 times in Deuteronomy, to say that the law is one aspect of what we would call the word of God, the truth. And the verb behind the noun means to give judgment. It's the authoritative pronouncement of a king or a judge. And so just as the Lord's law is his teaching, so his justice is what he has pronounced to be true, the decision he's reached. The servant comes then as a bearer to the nations of what they lacked, the word from God. His task is to be an agent of worldwide revelation. It's to reveal the truth. It's to be the truth. That's why Jesus came to us. That's why we celebrate Christmas. It's that Jesus, God in the flesh, came to us to share the truth, to be the truth, and to reveal the truth to us. That's the servant's ministry. Notice what else he says there in verse 4. He will not grow weary. The servant will not tire of this until justice has established, until his word goes out. And look where his word's going to go out to, to the coastlands. This is describing those faraway lands on the coast. It's telling us that, that his truth, that his word is going out to the nations, to the world's remotest people. This means everyone. That's the plan to spread the good news among the nations. Well, friends, this gives us hope. King Hezekiah's sin couldn't stop God. God's enemies couldn't stop him. Not even the cross would stop this servant from being successful. Psalm 46, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. See how powerful this God is. God wins. His very voice could destroy his enemies in but a moment, in but a word. This servant will win. His word will ring out throughout the earth. And we have the privilege of joining him in this task. What a joy. And isn't this what we're seeing happen here at Redeemer? Just last night, I went to a gathering of people from a Central Asian country where many men have recently turned to Christ. Tomorrow we have baptisms in the evening. A dozen people getting baptized who had the truth, who had God's word testified to them, and they repented and believed. And Christmas Eve, it's why I've heard of many members already passing out the invite cards and encouraging people to come. I've heard of two ladies who, on the spot, got two families to register on their phones to join us that night. People who've never been in a church service before. It's so that we can testify about the truth of God. That's why Redeemer Fellowship of Kuwait was launched last week. And to God be the glory and went well. It's why we are sending out people to to Grace City Cochin. It's why Pastor Benoit is there. It's why Jonathan Justin and Jaya Shinde, two of our deacons, it's why they're going there soon. We are servants following the great servant. That's who we are. We do as he did, and we go and make disciples of all nations. That's our mission. It's our mission because it's the servant's mission. So friends, there's someone... You need to testify God's word to. 
Is there someone you need to invite to join us on Christmas Eve night? Are there some friends you could invite to your home for a Christmas party and share the news of a Savior who's come? Who in your life needs to hear the gospel right now? Well, in our text, Isaiah gives us an emphatic answer to King Hezekiah's failure. Your king has failed, yes, but God's servant will succeed. And so church, let's go. Let's, let's go and make disciples of all nations. That's point number one. The servant will testify God's word. Might he do that through us, the church? But there's another delightful thing we read about the servant, and that's the second truth we'll see. That's point number two today. Number two, the servant will be tender toward his people. This is beautiful. The servant will be tender. Look at verses two and three. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. We see a third mentioning there of justice about his faithfulness to the truth. But do you see how he'll go about the task? Most people would throw away a bruised reed. A bruised reed would have been a tall glass a grass-like stick that would have been bruised, would have been smashed, would have no use. But this servant won't break it. Yes, the servant will bring his word. Yes, there will be justice and judgment. But now we see the manner of his justice and the manner of his truth telling. He'll be tender. Verse 2. Matir says that the three verbs there in verse 2 are probably cumulative, emphasizing his quiet and unaggressive manner uh, and that the fact that he wasn't coming to win some grand military battle. He wasn't coming to advertise himself. He will not cry aloud. He will not lift up his voice. He will not make it heard in the street. He's also not dismissive of others, however useless or beyond repair that they are. A bruised reed has no use in its current condition. <coughs> Friend, you may feel bruised for any number of reasons. If you feel that way, some of the reasons we might feel bruised are as a result of our own sin. Friend in distress, could it be that God is bruising you to bring you back to Him? Richard Sibbs, the great British Puritan author in the early 17th century, wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And in it he writes, It is a very hard thing to bring a dull and an evasive heart to cry with feeling for mercy. Our hearts, like criminals, until they be beaten from all evasions, never cry for the mercy of the judge. But could it be that your present bruising or discipline from the Lord is his love calling you back to himself? Like a good doctor who might inflict pain and hurt in order to bring healing, God will do whatever it takes to bring you back to him. A friend, have you turned away from God? 
Do you merely keep up appearances by showing up here on Fridays? And the rest of your life you have rejected him. Is that you? Could it be that he is quietly and tenderly calling you back today? Go to him. Repent. Turn from your sin. God doesn't break bruised reeds, and he doesn't put out smoldering wicks. A faintly burning wick here is referring to something that's near extinction. Now, I love candles. I love watching them burn, and the smells are amazing. Christmas time is, is best. With one candle, a whole room can smell like pine needles for the moment and transport us from the desert to a wintry forest. But there's a type of candle that I don't like. It's those birthday trick candles. You know what I'm talking about? It's the ones where you blow and then the flame comes back and you blow again and the flame comes back again. It's a little annoying because as a germaphobe, I really don't want someone blowing over and over again on my piece of cake. But for a normal candle, you blow it out and what happens? Well, it works. But what do you see for just but a moment, just but a split second? You see a smoldering wick, a faintly burning wick. There's just a little bit of a sign of that life left. But it's done. It's done. It will soon be extinguished unless it gets some major help. And in those days, you'd have to add oil uh, to help. But this wick, the servant will not quench. The servant is strong and willing to help even the weakest to make them shine brightly again. Isn't this wonderful? Isn't this a beautiful and sweet message for us this Christmas season? COVID has marked us for two years. Some of us are facing the effects of sickness. Others exhausted at work. Medical personnel who have worked tirelessly. Maybe you feel like you have nothing left to give. Oh friend, God isn't discarding you. Maybe you're that smoldering wick, barely any physical or spiritual or emotional life left in you. Well, the great preacher in London, Martin Mark Lloyd-Jones, as he was reading this passage and as he read Sibs' book, The Bruised Reed, during a time when he was overworked, during a time when he was utterly exhausted, he was subject to unusual onslaughts of the devil. But in this passage and in that book, he found the remedy. It's where Christ, he says, quieted his heart, soothed him, comforted, encouraged, and healed me. Well, fellow church member, maybe you need healing today. Maybe you're gasping for air. Maybe you're wounded, broken, tired, or lonely. My friend, if you follow Christ, you need to know that this servant will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're hurting, you've come to the right place. The church is not a place for saints who've got it all together, but we're more like a spiritual hospital. We're a place where we all come for help. It's a place where we all come to have our hearts soothed and comforted and encouraged and healed. Now, Richard Sims would say to you this morning that there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in you, that his mercy is more. Sims would also say that God is a physician best at all diseases, especially at the binding up and the healing of a broken heart. 
So this Christmas, be reminded that Jesus became a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick for you. God became flesh and he marched to his death on the cross in those last minutes, in those last moments when he was breathing his last there on the cross. He was a bruised reed. He was like that candle having burned for some time and now is facing its last moment of faintly burning wick. And then just like that, in an instant, it was out. It was extinguished. It seemed like all hope was gone the first day, the second day, nothing. More waiting. And then finally on the third day, on that third day, the flame came back magnificently as Jesus, the bruised reed, and Jesus, the faintly burning wick, rose from the dead. And he conquered death, and he conquered the judgment that we deserve. And it's that flame, it's that fire that burns today to give life to the dead, to those who turn from their sins and trust in Jesus to save them. That's what the upcoming verses 5 through 9 show us. Each servant psalm has what's often called a tail piece of verses directly afterwards. And these verses directly afterwards, verses 5 through 9, they're a confirmation. They're confirming the first four verses. In our passage, we read that this salvation is guaranteed because our God is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. It's God who stretched out the heavens and the earth. Reminds us of a little kid with Play-Doh or with clay, stretching it out with ease. That's the ease that it was for God to create the heavens and the earth and to create each of us. With such ease, he is so powerful, he made everything, he just stretched it out, and he gives breath, he gives life to us. This is the God who sends the servant to us, it's confirmed. Maybe you're buying some Christmas gifts during this season, you make purchases online, after you make a purchase, what do we often do? Well, we go to check our email to make sure that the purchase went through, to get the confirmation number, to see that it's Confirmed. Well, verses 5 through 9 here in Isaiah 42 are that confirmation. That God will do it. The same God who made the heavens and the earth and all of us is the same God who will give life. It's the same God who will keep us until the end. He will give eyes to the blind. He'll release us from the dungeons of our own sin. Now, Isaiah pointed to the promised servant who had come. And after a few hundred years, he did. He did. We're going to look at that over the next couple weeks. But friend, this Christmas, trust him. Trust him. Turn to the one who can save you and keep you forever. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the servant who died for our sins. Father, we thank you that he became a bruised reed and a faintly burning wick for us. Father, we thank you that though he might have appeared extinguished there on the cross, but he rose from the dead to conquer death and to give us life. Oh, Father, would we, would, would we know the height and the depth and the width of your love for us? Oh, Father, help us to see the great lengths that you went to bring us to you. We pray this in the tender name of Jesus. Amen.